Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? The great Mark Boardman here has just dropped a new uh, phrase, idiom on us, if you will. Uh, you can make an elephant drink water. What does that actually pertain to? What situation would you find yourself in in a day-to-day setting where you'd say, hey, well, you know, you can make an elephant drink water? Uh, zero situations, Jim. I think, okay. I think actually the, cor- the correct one is uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But I was just kind of... And the elephant just made its way in. The elephant in the room. Hey, if an drink elephant gets thirsty enough, he'll yeah. drink. Yeah. <clears throat> it's carrying a straw around, so... So, with that said, naturally, speaking of elephants and uh, horses and water, we're going to talk about low-power variable optics today. And across the table from Mark and I, we have Rob, who has joined us in the past, uh, from the Engineering Product Development Department, and he is going to be able to speak to some of the uh, more nerdy details about these LPVOs, as they are sometimes referred to. And then we also have Adam Maxwell across the table. And Adam is kind of embedded in on the practical application side of these optics in that uh, you work in our Millelio department and you also shoot competitively quite often and have used a number of LPVOs. And so... I know you mentioned a few interesting topics that we dis- could discuss, and one of the big ones, so, you know, for those of you, I guess we'll just do a real quick refresher for anybody not intimately familiar with these. When we say low-power variable optic, we're discussing any optic that essentially starts on one power, right? So it's one to something. There's one to fours, one to sixes, one to eights, yada, 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 so on and so forth. The idea is, I mean, how long have these kind of scopes been around, I guess? Uh, 1994. 1994. Interesting. It's They're about specific. Just as yes. old as I am. Okay. So these have kind of come around, and the unique thing is that you have, you know, your red dots, and your red dot is a very close quarter optic. It can only be one X, or there is no magnification that it's providing you. And then you have your higher end, or higher uh, power rifle scopes, like a 3 to 9, 4 to 12, 6 to 24, 4 to 16, whatever it might be. And that's not exactly something you can use for close quarters. So for a long time, you had to kind of choose one or the other. Or, of course, even before red dots, you just had iron sights, right? Yep. So you kind of had to choose one or the other. And this is sort of the happy medium that allows you to do a little bit of both. And, Adam, you mentioned one thing that I found, as I really got to thinking about it, I found pretty intriguing, is that these kinds of optics are now changing the dynamic of so many practical applications of firearms in that, you know, LEO, competition, you know, self-defense kind of thing. I mean, they really have changed the capabilities of firearms. I would say, would you, you know, firearms have even changed to adapt to be able to be kind of these do-it-all, if you will, firearms, or people are sort of adapting themselves to be more do-it-all shooters. Would you say that's kind of what's... You're yeah, seeing? I would I would say the a- application of I guess we could say that the genesis of this type of optic would be out of the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993. Hmm. So that was where the military first took an interest in a low power variable optic because for anyone who's seen the movie Black Hawk Down, they had a lot an urban setting where they kind of had to pick out hostile faces in crowds of civilians. Hmm. Um, so. 
the Army Special Forces put out a solicitation basically for this type of optic. And at the time, the industry wasn't really interested in it. Really, Schmidt and Bender were the only ones that would touch it. And it kind of largely went unaddressed for a long period of time. Okay. And it really kind of picked up the ball again. One of the key scopes that did that was when the Gen 1 and Gen 2 razors came out, was when the interest really picked up on that again. And then it was also right at the beginning of the global war on terror. So there was all kind of energy that got put behind these scopes. But essentially, we were kind of evolving out of an era where a service rifle basically had iron sights. Yeah. And the limitation was vision of, of the individual shooter. And then as optics started to get put on board, they started to find new capabilities for stuff, or they could put more capabilities in the hands of what we could call you know, lay people. So instead of before where the only people who had scopes or had magnifications were essentially sharpshooters or snipers, well, now we can put that kind of capability into the hands of general troopers or patrol officers, things of that nature, and now we can make people more effective with common carbines, essentially. The, the capability of the carbine was always there, but you need the in- interface to apply it, essentially. Oh, okay. Got it, it. It seems like such a good idea, and it is a yeah. good idea, right? And it, was it met with resistance or, or maybe lack of interest because it was just change or was it oh, too yeah. expensive or yep. they were worried about things breaking yep. or maybe all those things? All along the way, up, up until the, the present day. I mean, that's, that's a full-time job convincing people of, of um, the, the merits of such a system. But, yeah, essentially, you know, it has military doctrine and law enforcement administrations are very slow to change by nature. And they need to be convinced of these things. Well, we've always had iron sights. Why do we need optics now? And, well, if we give guys optics, are they going to break? And, yeah, that's definitely an ongoing process. Initially in the industry, like when that initial solicitation came out, there wasn't really anything there. They probably had to be convinced that there was demand for it. You know, there's lots of good ideas that get brought to us here at Vortex. You know, Rob probably sifts through hundreds of good ideas, but is there a market demand for it? Right. So I think that was probably what, what um, limited its growth in the beginning. And then also, it just missed the SOPMOD M4 program for SOCOM. That's the kit of an AR-15 that came with all the cool gadgets in one box, and then they would, like, configure the rifle. Oh, okay. So it missed. It, there wasn't something to solicit for that that project. And so when in the government, when you miss those things, they've decided this is what it's going to be, and it's going to be that way for a long time until they decide something else. So when that program kind of ran one or two cycles, that's when they came back to these, and that's when the industry was ready with earlier evolved editions of low-power variable optics. Mm -hmm. And then once they got some traction behind them, that drove drove the development into, into what they are today, where they essentially have all the capabilities of red dots, yeah. And higher magnification scopes. Would you guys say, I mean, have we seen a significant increase in, I mean, we know that we've seen a significant increase in the number of low-power variables out there. That's unquestionable, because like mm-hmm. you're talking about, it was there's not that long ago where you could hardly even find one. Mm-hmm. Has the technology behind them and the quality and performance behind them also been improving along with the just number of options out there that we've seen? And what like what what would you find mostly in the in the improvements? I'm thinking back to like the Gen One Razor. Yeah, you know that one to four first focal plane. Interestingly yeah. enough, 
well, that's a term that lives on today. Like, is it true one? Like yeah. when the when the Gen One Razor came out, like that was a thing to have a scope that was a true one power because every or a lot of offerings on the market were like a one point one or a one point five or something like mm-hmm. that. They couldn't yeah. quite get all the way there with an optical system. So when scopes came out that had a true one power, that was a game changer. And then once we had a true one power, well, what's the eye box behind there? The eye relief on mm-hmm. that scope, you know, that evolved. What's the illumination capabilities of a scope? That's evolved quite a bit. That's true, yeah. All those kinds of things. So you don't have to go. It's kind of like it's kind of like what we're seeing right now in rangefinders. Like rangefinding technology is kind of the wild west. Well, if you rewind three years in low power variable technology, that was the wild west to jump from. You know, and our competitors are coming out with evolutions in this product too. And so it was kind of everybody coming out with a new thing, and then you had to match what that guy had and come out with something new. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we've seen pretty rapid evolution. Again, kind of going back to, you can kind of trace it back to the, the global war on terror heating up quite a bit where we were uh, deployed in Afghanistan. So now engagements for the average combat soldier were a couple hundred yards where they were shooting across valleys or, or things like that, or they needed some of that capability. Yeah. So then there started to be, some uh, monetary incentive to develop these kinds of things because there was a need in you know yeah. in hot military action that was going on. Well, and that's and that's the big thing everybody always wants to know is you scan the forums, you scan Reddit, you scan whatever messages we get in all the time on social media, and you see a lot of people asking, "Do I get a red dot or do I get a low power variable?" And the question comes up most likely because. A lot of these people are thinking, for your average civilian, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be at 100-yard range. Maybe that's about basically all I have. And for, you know, at 100-yard range, if you're shooting with a red dot, you can hit a steel target just fine. Absolutely. Yeah, even out to, you know, two, three, whatever. Mm -hmm. You can hit a steel target just fine. We also know some, there's some just insanely good marksman out there. I, who's that one guy who shoots out to like 700 yards with a red dot or something like that? I, I may have I may have done that. Oh, it's Adam. Adam. <laughs> That's right, actually, yes. I've seen it. Also with the, with the Spitfire. Spitfire. With the Spitfire. Apparently, we got, we got the right guy. We got that guy. He's he's here. Um, yeah. Every time I say that, I always think it's like Podcast super crazy. Is over. You don't need it? a yep. low-par variable. You don't need one. Someone much cooler than me. Uh, anyway, but... You can do those things, but then they're also wondering to themselves, there's always the, yes, but if this happens, it'd be oh, nice yeah. to be able to zoom in a little bit. So how does that break down? Like, what, where are you suggesting when somebody asks, should I get a red dot? Should I commit to the one power only thing, lightweight, fast, or should I get the low power variable? I think in the beginning, you're kind of working into, you can compartmentalize that into two things. In the beginning, the scopes were much more fragile than they are today. Really? Okay. So, I mean, if you go back, variable power scopes, the mechanisms themselves were just fragile. Um, So, you were trading that magnification capability for robustness. You know, a a red dot's a pretty relatively indestructible thing by comparison. Kind of foolproof for the most part. So, you got that. And then also, I think what has changed the paradigm now that the technology in scopes has improved and the political environment that some professionals operate in, military and law enforcement, there are severe consequences for shooting the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Especially in law enforcement, you don't have to watch the news very long that some innocent person got shot. Well, now you have an optic on a rifle where they can... They can zoom in. It might only be 50 yards away, but they can tell if it's a cell phone or a handgun. 
in, in their hand. Mm-hmm. They can tell if it's the right guy. They can watch situations unfold, but they still have that red dot capability. That's primarily what the rifle needs to be used for. They still have that capability, and now it's been enhanced. So we've kind of, the bar has been raised on scopes that they can do everything that red dots can do now, and they have magnified yeah. capability. Now very much tank-like, too, in their durability as yes. well. So so what you're implying, then, it, it almost seems like, look at the low-power variable optic as not a as a one power optic that can zoom in yes. and not so much like a mm-hmm. oh it's a mm-hmm. it's a higher magnification optic like a 6 or even an 8x or whatever that happens to be able to do Correct. one power. Correct. So it's it's primary function is to mm-hmm. be a one power optic with the okay. Yep, and I would say that's how the the customer's perception of it has evolved, you know, if we in this last 5 years. Mm-hmm. Even when you talk about reticles you know, reticles, everyone wants these reticles to do all kinds of cool things. It's like, well, yeah, that's cool, but it's not a PRS scope. Like, right. You know, are you giving something up for having a technical reticle in, in an optic like this? Yeah. Or is that a good, com- are there reticles that are a good compromise in between mm-hmm. there? So. Yeah. When you're talking to somebody who's then also considering the red dot, and this is something I've never really been able to explain to somebody super well, because even I still go and I get, red dots for certain firearms that I put together. I can't really explain what it is about a firearm when it's like when I build one or when I buy one where I'm like, that gets a red dot, that gets a one to six. How, what, like, how do you put that in words, would you say? Like for, let's talk, because we talked about the low prior variable. How about the red dot? Like, what's, an, what's a firearm where you're like, that gets a red dot for sure? I would say in the current state of things, red dots are still king and are preferable for rifles where the speed of application is number one if putting bullets on target as fast as possible with as little interaction you know it's as point and click as it has to be Mm -hmm. that's what a red dot can do and if that where it went from being a general purpose optic i think it's kind of switched places now with variable power optics where i because scopes can do what they can do now i think a red dot is a specialized application it's like okay i can say that that this carbine is only for home defense well, measure some of the distances in your house. That's not very far. Mm-hmm. But, you know, time is life there. Same thing where even in military applications, if you got guys who are dedicated assaulters or they're going on a mission where they're just going to fast rope onto a building and clear a building, okay, well, they don't need a scope. But if that person is going out on a tour of duty in a very rural place where there might be some CQB, but they also have other things you know, this is a more general purpose optic now. Yeah. But if you can if you can say that a, a weapon system is for a very specific application and that is a very a very rapid engagement type application, yeah. That's where the red dot still still lives. King. That's a good way of putting it. The specialized nature of it. I hadn't thought of mm-hmm. that terminology yeah. before, but it and makes I mean, sense. And I think you're I mean you're speaking to it from a great standpoint, but it being mainly military and law enforcement, a little bit of home defense stuff too. So I guess that's that's civilian market. But I mean also cost comes into it a little bit. You know how much so, somebody yes. wants to spend on something. I mean, if you look at our crossfire red dot at 150 bucks, that's a that's a great option for home defense and you know an inexpensive AR pistol build or whatever you yeah. want to do and then I think our 
what is that, our one to six strike eagle is probably our least expensive low par variable. There's the one mm-hmm. to four crossfire. One to four yeah. crossfire. Yeah. I'm sorry, but even that still that's at two fifty, and the strike eagle one to six at three hundred. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. so I mean, there's that too, and 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 trade offs between you know different features and and the yeah. and the price, but it's ultimately and, come down to what's going to do the job best, I think, for you. And so. as I think about it too, when you get a red dot, let's say you know you bring up the hundred and fifty dollar crossfire red dot, for example, excellent red dot. It does what it needs to do, which is it gives you a dot and it right. gives you no magnification because yep. that's what you're getting it for. And to get that one power feel, if you will, that quickness mm-hmm. and that sort of unimpeded free feeling, to get that in a low power variable on, on that scope's one power. I mean, we talk about it all the time. You look at the Razor 1 to 6, that's a $1,400 optic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that deliver is probably the most close to red dot like feel that you can mm-hmm. get. Yep. You know, in a yep. low power variable, you're spending fourteen hundred bucks for it, yep. and of course you're getting all the benefits of being able to zoom mm-hmm. in and everything. But then when you spend one hundred fifty dollars on a red dot, it's like, well, if all you wanted was the red dot feel, right? Yeah. Then you can spend one hundred fifty bucks and just get the red dot feel. Correct. You can't get any of the other benefits, but you can just get that. But right. yeah, like you said, yes. if all you need is the one, right. you got the one, mm-hmm. right? The other the other thing I guess with red dots too is there is no eye relief. So there's no eye box for a red dot. As long as the dot I mean you just you, you can move it. your head wherever you, you need to and if you can see the dot then you're in good shape. I mean the the Gen two one to six has got an in- incredible eye box, but you still have to be, you know, in a general mm. general vicinity for it to work. So I guess in the in the instance that you have some really strange shooting position that you would need to be in, uh, maybe you'd run mm-hmm. into an issue with a low power variable. But yep. What's I would suppose there's a little bit of a, a size weight advantage to, sure. to yep. the red dot. Yep. yep, 100%. Yeah. Rob, speaking to the low power variable on the engineering side of things, yeah. now inside this optic, is it? are we looking at anything that's much dramatically different than a high power optic, like a 624, 4 to 16, stuff that people are really used to for hunting, long range shooting? The the general construction is, is largely similar. I mean, you've got an, an objective... Uh, focal system, you've got a, we'll call it a zoom focal system, and then you've got an eyepiece focal system, mm-hmm. um, or optical system, I should say. They're not all focal systems, sorry. But um, it's similar in that instance to high higher magnification scopes. The thing that's more difficult to correct for, and probably, I don't know, all, you know, as much of the genesis of low power variables Adam does or why, you know, the first one that came out was like a 1.1 or a 1.5, but mm-hmm. I, my guess would be that it's gotten easier with technology and, and design ideologies and things like that throughout time. But um, it's tough to correct down for a, a true one power image reconstruction without recreating a bunch of aberrations in the process or, oh, or okay. undesirable things in the process. That would be my guess as to why it wasn't a true one power initially back in 94. I mean, that's what, 25 years ago. So since then, I think as optical designs have evolved, you know, different glass types have become available, different manufacturing processes have been mm-hmm. um, become available, and then that all drives costs down a little bit and makes it more attainable in kind of the, the commercial market or even in the high-end market. I mean, this is $1,400 as we were talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. So, It's pretty crazy to think about, though, because you're taking light and an image through this optic, and it has to go through, you know, we talked about in RifleScope, uh, all about RifleScopes with Dave, you know, it's up to, you know, sometimes well over 10 lenses in the system, and you're taking mm-hmm. all that through. It's bouncing around. It's getting bent around, flipped upside down, who knows what, zoomed, 
unzoomed. And then at the end, you're trying to produce an image on the other side that looked exactly like it was before it got manipulated at all. Yep. So that's that's got to be quite a process. And then also give it the flexibility to then zoom in from there. Yep. So I can only imagine the optical the optical engineer is Yeah, it I mean it's it's definitely a different it's a different approach that needs to be done to the optical design. I mean, if you think about this as a one to six, right? And mm-hmm. then the three to eighteen and the four and a half to twenty-seven that we have are also six X ratio mm-hmm. scopes. Speaking to the razor gen twos here, yeah. So, yep, sorry. You can't um, you can't use the same optical system like this wouldn't be copied and pasted into the three to eighteen and the four and a half to twenty-seven. Right. Um, because it's you you have to deal with a much wider angle at uh, at one power because you know having a good field of view is also important because if it isn't if it's a narrow field of view at one power yeah you're still getting a one power experience but you're getting a, a much more like tunnely um, mm-hmm. you know sight picture than you would be if you had a wider field of view yeah um, and I mean that's something that this scope does really well you have a nice wide field of view and a, a generous eye box so it it gets you really close to a like a red dot like sight picture so right for sure and then. Let's also talk to a few of the, I guess I'll call them misconceptions, for lack of a better term, that some people see when they think of low-power variables. One, you first thing you mentioned as you're going back from the objective to the zoom to the eyepiece, but the objective, mm-hmm. right? So they're small in comparison to, let's say, my 624 by 50. Now, many people, I know we've discussed this in other podcasts before, many people will look at objective size as the sole determining, or determining factor mm-hmm. of you know light transmission, low light ability, in many cases, though, like, okay, so the, for folks listening here, we've talked about the Razer Gen 2 1 to 6 here a lot. That is because it is literally just right in front of us right now. But there's also the PST Gen 2 1 to 6. There's the yep. Strike Eagles we've mentioned. But let's look at, let's look at again, just this Razer Gen 2 in front of us. This might be one of our brightest, most, like, great in low light scope. One of them, one of the best in our lineup. Yep. And has a 24 millimeter objective. Yeah. So that, you know, that's not telling the whole story. Sometimes people I've seen it, where they're just not used to these kinds of optics, and it's a 24-millimeter objective, you guys got to crank that up to at least 32. And it's like, well, not really. Yeah. And can you go on and explain that? Like, why you could crank this thing up a little bit. I yep. mean, it's not like it's going to take up really any more space. It already sucks in underneath the turrets, yep. you know? Yeah. So why isn't it bigger? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'll go back to the uh, rifle scope podcast that you did with Dave Mm -hmm. um, Hamilton a few weeks back. And he was talking about kind of that rubber sheet that ends up getting stretched as you're doing a product design. Right. Oh, right. And so I'll, I'll come back to that, but I wanted to caveat it. So the, the thing that you can do and, and people are right in saying that the larger, the objective lens that you have, the more, um, or the brighter conceptually, that's correct. Um, you're able to gather more light, so you're starting with like a, a larger amount of light, if you will. Mm-hmm. The uh, another thing I've heard is like the the tube diameter is what leads to image brightness, and that's not the case. It's really limited by the objective lens. Okay. That being said, also the glass types and the the lens design; those are all really critical in in reproducing a bright image. The mm-hmm. coatings that are on those lenses are also really important. So it's kind of like, you know, if um, you could have the largest objective lens that you want, but if you lose really poor transmission glasses or you do really like incorrect coatings in the wrong spots, you're not going to get great light transmission. So conceptually it's correct, but in practice or in application, it's not that simple. Um, Mm -hmm. Going back to the rubber sheet thing, if you wanted to make this a 32 millimeter objective lens, now what ends up happening is you need to basically re-image rays that are coming from a, a wider angle 
to get through the same you have what's called like a faster lens system. Okay. So you'd have to do more correction for that image in order for it not to appear distorted or have some weird uh, anomalies going on. So you can you can do that, but it's not always going to be the most um, the the most beneficial. The other thing too to keep in mind is the objective lens relative to the the magnification at higher powers relates to your exit pupil diameter. Right. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're, you know, bigger than what your pupil is going to be dilated to, you're going to have quite a bit of kind of forgiveness on head placement before the image starts to wink out. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing to that we kind of keep in mind. And, you know, we got a lot of different things to balance in order to deliver the best scope that you can from a, you know, from a user standpoint. So those are a couple of things that uh, that relate to the the objective lens size. I don't know if that answered your question. No, I, yeah, I think that not, does. Just just in many ways, I think it comes down to when people ask, well, "Why don't you put a bigger objective on it?" It's just, well, we don't need it. You yeah. know, you don't need a bigger objective. It's not right. really actually. In fact, if anything, it might hurt right the performance of the optic, and then it makes it bigger and heavier, and you know all those things. You, I, I really hate like so. I hate the answer. It depends. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, when it comes to optical design, that's really the answer that ends up. Uh, and one of our optical engineers, Christian, says that a lot too. It's like, and he's right. You know, we always razz him about it and give him a hard time, but he's right. It really does depend a lot on you know the the situation and what you're planning on using the scope for and things like that. And going back to the true one power thing way back one in 94, they may have been able to get it down to actually one power, but there may have been a ton of spherical aberration or something like that would, that would have been, you know, basically made the scope unusable, or they would have had to really narrow down the field of view in order to eliminate that or, or something, you know, to that effect. And, and so they decided to go to 1.1 or one and a half because it doesn't totally confuse your brain with when you're seeing that and and defeat the purpose of using the scope. Right. Gotcha. Another classic thing that I've seen is you know, some people will see an optic that is true one power, like, you know, Razor 1 to 6, PST Gen 2 1 to 6, Strike Eagle 1 to, you know, whatever. They get it up to their eye, mm-hmm. and they put it on one power, and they start saying, well, wait a minute, this doesn't look like one power. Yeah. Something's yep. funky. Yep. It looks a little <laughs> smaller, or it looks a little bigger. What's going on? And a lot of times they can't put their finger on it, Sometimes, or sometimes they'll just say, it looks like 1.1, or it looks like 0.9, or something like that. What's going on there? So that has to deal with the diopter adjustment, and which the, normally is just for your reticle. It is the the thing that's different with focus. with low power variables. It's also what sets your true magnif or what sets your low end magnification. So, hmm. funny story here. Um, we were doing a bunch of competitive testing out at the the range we used to go to, and. I, I ran a course with a Razor 1 to 6, and the diopter wasn't adjusted for my prescription. Um, and so this was like one of the first times I had, I'd gone out shooting before, but this was one of the first times I had shot a low-power variable, and let alone a bunch of them. And so it just so happened that the person that shot before me had a different enough prescription, and where the diopter was for them, everything looked great, and where it was for me looked uh, not that great. So I ran the stage, you know, we kind of did a timed, you know, uh, like a three gun stage. And so we timed it and then looked at hits and, and zones and stuff like that after the fact. And I was like, well, I did okay, but I really like, I don't know, this razor isn't really, you know, what it, uh, what everybody yeah. says. Yeah, what's everybody yeah. talking <laughs> about here? What's, uh, you know, what's all the hubbub <laughs> about here? And then, um, and then Scott's like, oh, you have to adjust the diopter for your eye prescription. And I was like, oh, I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> so I did that, and I was like, oh, okay, now I see what all the hype's about. So 
Um, it does yeah, make a significant difference. Huge difference. So if you, you know, the, and the thing too with low power variables, at least what I do, which maybe based on that last story, don't listen to what I'm about to say, but Adam, you can maybe throw some credibility to it. Um, when I've got a, one, a low power variable mounted up to an AR, as an example, I'm shooting with both eyes open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'll, what I'll do is I'll adjust the diopter in, until kind of I see both of those images sync up to be at the, the same magnification. Mm-hmm. And then I find, too, when I zoom into six power in this instance that the reticle is still, you know, really in, in focus, too, there. So Yep. I would, I would concur. That's what I do as well, especially in, in most of the applications that these are used for. Shooting on more on one and two power than I am on five and six power. So I optimize the image for that that end of the power gotcha. spectrum. But it's also, I mean, usually it's not too far off from where you would be yeah. on a properly adjusted reticle image as well. So yep. yeah. Um, and, and then that, once we find that spot, we witness mark it. On our personal scopes, we oh, sure. make a mark on there with a Sharpie so we yeah, know we can see if it moves. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, a lot of people won't. They either don't touch that thing when they first get the scope. They just pull it out, go with it right away yeah. as is. Or some people will kind of fiddle around with it a lot. Some people are guilty of just over-fiddling with the diopter, right? Oh, yeah. Like, they think that uh, as I'm shooting at this distance or as I'm shooting at that distance, I need to change it for different distances. Or that looks a little bit funny, so I'm going to change it here until it looks right, and then I'm going to look over at another thing, and I think that looks a little funny, so I'm going to change it again. Really, it's kind of like a one-and-done, set-it-and-forget-it kind of yep. thing, unless it somehow gets bumped. Like you said, you kind of witness mark it there. But, yep, yep. I mean, that's the intention is that once you set it, you should be pretty much good. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So I'd say those are pretty much the biggest things that I see. It's just it, it all, a lot of it revolves around the one power stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the objective thing I've seen from time to time, but a lot of it yeah, revolves yeah. around one power. And, that, and like you said earlier, a lot of people get this thing to be a one-power optic that happens to be able to zoom in. Right. Yep. And then the design also behind it, it being one power, like Rob said, being one power, but also having, you know, the the field of view experience and the, you know, so it doesn't feel like you're looking through a tube, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially on that one power, being able to present a reticle in space. Yeah. That's the magic of it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I know you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Adam, but just on the Millilio side of things, I mean... Does seem like the popularity and hype that we see in the civilian side of the market is is echoed in that arena. Kind of oh, yeah. more and more people adopting this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you also see just a difference? And I can't tell if I'm just sort of immersed in it a lot, or I go on Instagram a lot. And I see a lot of people training and stuff and whatnot on Instagram. Do you also feel like these have forced people to need to work on their marksmanship and just ensuring that they are essentially a good shot? more it just is is it kind of like with more power comes more responsibility no pun intended i don't, you know, <laughs> I don't like, think uh, so i think people almost think they're more complicated than they are you yeah. know the, they they think you know it's kind of like anything on on scopes like people think there's a whole bunch of hocus pocus voodoo inside there when really they're like mechanically they're pretty simple devices yeah you know right. so um i think a lot of people think they're more complicated than they are and so for that reason especially on like on the the uh, shooting classes side of that, like instructors get asked all the time you, if you watch the live feeds and the chats and all well what do you think about low power variables is it you know this or is it that and and guys who shoot a lot are like yeah dude it's it's real it's legit like it's okay We're, we'll give you permission you, you can have one <laughs> you know well but everyone yeah it's just kind of that transitional phase of like well is it is it time yet 
can it can it yeah. do what I do? Yeah. Well, and I can understand so. how that can be a little intimidating, right? Because with a red dot, you basically mount it, you get it zeroed, and then you adjust your you know your brightness, and that's pretty much it. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing else to it. There's no. You don't have to level it in rings. You don't have to do yeah. That yeah, stuff. you don't have to adjust magnification. You don't have to worry about if it's a first focal plane or a second focal plane rifle scope. Um, you don't have to worry about anything that's going on with a reticle and needing to you know make heads or tails out of that. You know, what a, mm-hmm. is it a BDC reticle? Is it is it not? It's just a dot. It's just right. dead yeah. simple. Yeah. But it's really once you get into it, it's not it's not as intimidating, I think, as it sounds. Right. But that right. could be maybe. Wh- yeah, but there is more to it. I mean, you, yeah. you, you do a lot of trainings, right? From a training perspective, red dot, pretty simple. I mean, there is there is a little bit more to these optics, you know. I think a lot of the training on these optics is boiling down how simple it is. Like, sure. you know, well, you think it's this complicated. Well, it's actually this simple. Yeah. Yeah. I also kind of think of it sometimes maybe helpful for folks to think of. It's kind of like phones. Like, I mean, we've been text messaging for a long time. The text message that you would send on your old phone is still you saying, hey, what's for dinner, as it is now, but the operating system you're on has completely different capabilities mm. as well. So, mm. you know, an iPhone does all kinds of things, but it still sends a message. It's still an interface for sending a message. It just right. has all sorts of other capabilities, too, right. to help you communicate with the world. So, same kind of thing. We're, we're interfacing where a bullet's going to land when we shoot it. We just have a lot more, or a lot more detailed control over what it does now. Makes sense. I feel like now's a good time to intro the new one. The, the new, new one, what? Jim? The new one. Oh, sure. Because, because... The what, new one to what, The Jim? new one <laughs> to 10. Oh! The Razer Gen 3. Yep. Because as we discussed sort of how the, the low-power variable has changed the landscape of so many things in shooting, this one... And I genuinely believe it's not just my own personal, like, super hyped upness about this scope, but th- this one is likely to be sort of the next level of changing the game, if you will. This is the Gen 3 Razor, and it feels weird to be talking about it in like, front of the like, cool? we can and yeah, and discussing it on the recording, yeah, because it's been pretty hush hush for a long time. For now. a long time, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Gen Gen Two One to Six that we mentioned time and time again here. Uh, is now being, what's the next? It now has an air. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I, I'd say no, it's like it's the evolution. The, I don't want to ruin the excitement by yeah. just screwing up my vocabulary. But yes, it's the next evolution. Yeah. I think honestly, I think we're nervous to talk about it. It is. Yeah. We're yes, so excited it is. about it. Is the, it. It, it, it the excitement is. level. It's over nine thousand. Yes, and no, I, f- I is. also feel like just by talking about it, like on camera being recorded, like there's possibly like one of these things like looking at me right now <laughs> telling me not to <laughs> yeah. uh yes vortex very dangerous place to work yeah um <laughs> nerf guns everywhere if i may just because i think you know it's well and for the folks listening and not watching it on youtube they're not going to be able to see the difference but i'm just going to do this real quick so yes. so people can see that it actually is a different scope because it looks very similar it's it still does. stealth shadow it's can't about, get it in black. Sorry, can't get it in black. It's the same length. It's the same uh, weight as the uh, the diopters are in different I positions. Here, very, oh, okay, I was just about to say it might yep. be short, but yeah, same um, length. Somebody had a different prescription. Yeah, somebody had a different prescription. That's pretty pretty that close is, there. Yeah, basically dead on same. Um, when it's I first, same weight. It's the same weight. Yeah, same twenty-one weight, and a half or twenty-one point six. Even though ounces. now it's a thirty-four millimeter tube, correct? Twenty-eight millimeter objective. Nope, twenty-four still. Did we say one to what yet? It's, it's a one, one to ten. It's a one, one to ten. ten. Thank you. It's the first X. focal plane. First focal plane is first well. 
focal plane. The razor's back to first focal plane. We made it. We full made circle. it back. Full, full circle. circle. <laughs> oh man, yeah. And that you know, you talk about too something with first focal planes and whatnot. So this is this is actually kind of this is a very toothy grin moment for me. I feel because for so long people have been begging for a one to eight first yeah. focal plane <laughs> razor, just yeah. begging for it. Just you need to make this vortex. Well, sorry. Sorry, we made a 1 to 10 first focal Well, plane. it's also a 1 to 8. But it, well, it can oh, be a 1 to 8 as well. Rob is right. Um, yeah, that, was my, that was my favorite part of the interim where yeah. we couldn't talk about it. It was like, yep. when are you guys coming out with a 1 to 8? I'm like, never. Yep, <laughs> yep. And that's... <laughs> never but yes at the same time. That yeah. is actually one of those things that you hear a lot about people discussing the idea of a first focal plane, a low power variable. Mm-hmm. Because when you get into the idea of first focal plane, you're talking about the point of first focal plane isn't to just be able to brag to your buddies at the range that it's first focal plane, right? So the actual point of it, for all the uh, Instagram commandos out there, is so that you may utilize not just the reticle center crosshair. That has nothing to do with it. We're talking about all the reticle's subtensions, its, mm-hmm. its lines, its hash marks, its dots, its whatever, on any magnification for ref- using as a reference in comparison to the size of the image, right? I'm probably overcomplicating it, but first focal plane is the one where the reticle appears to grow and shrink as you zoom in and out, but in reality it is not because it is maintaining the same exact scale to the image as the image is growing and shrinking. Both are doing it at the same exact time. Now, some people used to complain. They'd say, well, the Razor Gen 2, 1 to 6, is second focal plane, so I can't use that reticle on any other magnification. But then there's just the idea that, well, with a low power variable on like one to six that reticle gets so tiny mm-hmm. or appears to get so tiny on one power you're not going to be using those hash marks on one power yep. it's just you know and and really as you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and the reticle appears to grow and grow and grow and it gets finally to the point where you can even start to see those hash marks anymore and use them you're almost to you're, six you're anyway. maxed out anyway yeah just about which jim you brought up the original razor hd one to four right which was amazing yeah. in concept and i feel like this scope is kind of a lot of those concepts actually coming to fruition with all the practicality to yes. make it work. Because like you said, the one four, it was, it was like a red dot on one and it was first focal plane. And I guess it certainly could alleviate maybe if you weren't all the way on four and you were using your sub tensions, you know, some, um, you yeah, know, you get a little like margin of error there perhaps or something. Yeah. But <laughs> this makes sense. It does. Would you say, would you say that's about right, Adam? Yeah. Well, and I think, a lot of people think about it in, in kind of the terms that you were talking about, but the value of first focal plane and something like this, I think a big part of it is in the inverse. It's like now we can have a technical reticle that disappears. Yeah. Essentially. Right. Oh, so okay. I can have so it's some not of those in the way. Yeah. So I can have some of those technical features when I want them, mm-hmm. but when I don't want them on the lower powers, they become much more subdued. It's a good way of putting it. So another another thing that's really important to point out on the Gen three here is that so yes, we went to ten power. Yes, it's first focal plane. I think equally as important is the reticle is actually truly daylight bright. So yeah. so you have that literally like a red dot. You know, to Adam's point, the reticle really shrinks down at one power. So effectively, you do have a, a, just a single red dot because the features are so close together at one power. But I mean, it, it's it's visible, and I, I think almost every single lighting condition that I can dream of. I mean, we weren't in the desert or, or necessarily up like, uh, but we did look at it against you know snow yeah, here in Wisconsin, you know where there's a lot of reflection from sunlight on those handful of off that stuff yeah, handful that. of sunny days we have in the winter with snow. But <laughs> it was, um, I mean, it's 
it's really bright. I mean, yeah. to the point where I don't think I would want to run it at 11 unless, you know, it, it's like reflections off of snow or sand or something mm-hmm. like that. And you're, you're getting a lot of streetlight back I, at you. I can definitely say firsthand we've had it in a lot of environments and my experience is exactly that. It is it is bright enough in any condition we put it in, you know, in the in the desert in Vegas and, uh, you know, in the Sanderos in Texas, you know, in the middle of winter, anywhere that we have taken the scope, it is right. it is plenty bright to do whatever it is, is you that, need to do. Is and that difficult to get in a first focal plane? It's really difficult. Yeah. And I think that's 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 one of the reasons why I wanted to call that out specifically, because if you look at our strike eagle line mm-hmm. as an example, those are also I mean, once we get into reticles, you'll see the reticles are there's some commonality there where you have, you know, some floating features and things like that. That's because for first focal plane, you have to use a glass reticle, at least right now with where technology's at. But those scopes aren't, I wouldn't call true daylight bright. I mean, they're okay. They do have illumination and, and you can pick them out even when it's uh, sunny out, but they'll wash out in really bright environments. And then mm-hmm. that's okay in some instances because that reticle is bigger. You've got, you know, some reference points in the second focal plane and things like that. But for mm. a first focal plane rifle scope, it's really important for you to have that true daylight bright illumination. It really helps making it a lot easier yeah. to shoot and hit targets at one power. So, mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing is to get all that light up there. Right now when you're talking about, again, a first focal plane optic, the reticle is up underneath, basically underneath about the turrets. Yeah. And to get all that from everything I've gathered the amount of light that you need for true daylight bright up there is far more difficult than to get it back here underneath about the mag ring where a second focal plane reticle would be. Yeah, it has Isn't to... Isn't that right? Uh, it's not so much the proximity, like where it's located in the scope as it is how much of... I'm going to get some technical terms here, so please you know, do. fish me out if I get too deep, but it's basically the amount of what we call luminance area. So hmm. think about the first focal plane reticle is going to scale, as you said before, correctly with the image as you increase magnification, right? So the reticle itself, the etched features on a piece of glass, those aren't changing. It's just as you're magnifying the image, you know, they appear to be getting larger. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the actual piece of glass, they're, they're the same size. They're you know, five, ten micron, whatever it ends They're up being, super tiny, super tiny, first focal right? One especially, and then so if you look at the strike equal reticle, where you've kind of got that that broken horseshoe illumination, you know that area. If you look at all of that surface area, that's considerably larger than what you'd have on the first focal plane reticle on the Gen 3 1 to 10 here. So what if you held like a second focal plane cuz that one in the Strike Eagle is still glass etched like a it like is. like this one in the Razor here but yep. it's in the second focal plane and if you held that reticle between your fingers like the actual thing itself wouldn't the features appear to be bigger yes. than it does on if you were holding a first focal plane yep. reticle in your hands. So here here's an example maybe that'll be somewhat useful for people watching in. So if you can see this band that I've got with the VTX logo that's on my water bottle here. Right. And you see the actual VTX logo on my water bottle. Right. This, this would be not... One's di- about the size of a penny and one's about the size of, like, almost your palm. Yeah. So this would be not dissimilar to the size difference between a first focal plane and a second focal plane reticle feature if they were at the subtending at the same size. Like, right. this, let's say this is a one MOA dot for first focal plane. This is a one MOA dot for second focal plane. Yeah. So you literally just have this much more area for that light to reflect off of to catch your eye okay. versus what you have for first focal plane. Got gotcha. it. Gotcha. Yep. Interesting. 
Yeah. Okay. That is, yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So and we, so so we had to go to a com- we had to use a completely different illumination technology for the Gen three huh. one to ten in order to get that amount of light intensity for it to be usable. So with a normal you know second focal plane or even high magnification first focal plane rifle scope, what you'll have is um, what we call an etch and fill illumination system. Yeah. And uh, Dave again spoke to this on that rifle scope podcast. So it's basically. If you think about reticle features, you know, you've, you have those chrome features, which appears black. And then um, what ends up happening for the illuminated features is those features are cut out of the glass and then backfilled with a titanium dioxide or similar like powder. And when the light hits those particles, it, the light scatters back. It's really inefficient. And so um, we partnered with a, a company who I will not name, but they have a really innovative illumination system for basically creating a, a really, really bright image intensity or, or light intensity in a, a really small form factor. So we went cool. with a completely different uh, system on this reticle, and it was really the only way we could figure out how to how to do that with, um, you know, and maintaining true, true daylight bright in the first focal plane. So, yeah. And that presented a whole host of issues on the design side of things with figuring out how to fit that in, especially at the first focal plane, and then making it all, you know, uh, reliable because we wanted to make sure that, you know, if it's if it's going to be in the razor line, it's got to be bulletproof. You know, it's got to be super rugged. Yeah. Um, and people not worry about it. When so. if you're fitting that thing in there, too, you also want to make sure that you're not then taking away from, like, field of view or t- amount of travel that yep. the scope has inside of it, right? Because yep. I imagine that's going to be taking up room where, you know, an erector would be, for example, or something along those yep. lines. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I went to a 34 millimeter tube on that's this That's what one. I was going to ask. Yep. Yeah. Fit it. Yeah. And this still has has a very impressive field of view and um, kind of still that same feeling that the Razor one to two or the Razor Gen two one to six yep. uh, was always known for, especially on one power. Yeah, I think it actually yeah. has a little bit wider field of view at one power. Nice. And I mean, obviously, a, a smaller field of view on ten power compared to six power, but that goes without saying. Right, right. At six power, I think it's still a wider field of view than the one to six. And um, I don't know. I mean, to me. It, it's pretty special. I mean, I thought the one to six, the one to six is an awesome scope. Mm-hmm. And Adam, you can maybe tell me if you agree or disagree. So I've spent a good amount of time behind the one to six and I thought, you know, it's got one of the best kind of optical experiences that you can get in a low power variable. But the Gen 3 one to 10 makes the one to six look tunnely. And I think that that's, <laughs> that's crazy that's to me. Weird. That is crazy. Um, but like it's, I, I, that's kind of what my takeaway was it's, from it. It's everything that you came to love about the one to six and more. I mean, I've, yeah. I prefer the one to 10 in every way compared to one to six. Wow. And, and I've had to, I've had to jump back and forth a few times in, you know, while it was in prototyping, like there's times where I had to go back to one to six and, and things like that. And so I, I did get to do the side by side and given the choice, I would go to the 10 every time. And it's not even for the 10 power. Like most of the shooting that I've yeah. done with it has been on like two or three. Interesting. What but you, the the image, the interface that you get in this scope is just amazing. Yeah. It's, what, what do you find it's like when you do zoom up to 10 power? Because I know one criticism that LPVOs that have gone to a wider range of magnification yeah. get is that usually once you get to that higher end, I mean, we're talking about stretching an optical system. From being able to do one thing that is is you're comparing one power, you know, oftentimes everybody's comparing it to specialized, as we've discussed in the mm-hmm. earlier, red dots that are only one power. That's the only thing they do. So they darn well better be good at it, and they are good at it. Yeah. You're then stretching that optical system to also be good on 10 power, which let's let's admit, 
10 power is a power that you're like, I mean, of course, we know Adam can shoot up to 700 yards with one power. Right. But 10 power is a power where you're talking about shooting to a grand. You yeah. know, like that's yeah. perfectly comfortable. Most of the world record sniper shots have been taken with 10 power scopes. Yeah. So how are, how is the design going into that where you're doing that? What's this thing like on 10 power? You know, I mean, does it start to get hard to get behind, start to get darker? I mean, I'll let you comment on that, Adam. I, I mean, it's all relative to what? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. um, so... On you know ten power on this one is that comparable to ten power on the AMG? I don't know, probably probably not. Yeah, okay, but fair. Certainly adequate for anything you would use a ten power scope for, though. I mean, we yeah. we were on some kind of closed private events, let's say, um, where we were shooting out to. I mean, I was in sniper competitions and we shot beyond a thousand yards with the scope on a three hundred eight. Mm-hmm. Certainly adequate to that distance. Can you see in? extreme detail at that distance eh, no but you can you can see it well enough to shoot it for yeah. sure but yeah as, as magnification increases you know the um the, 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 yeah the definition of the image or the um clarity oh, of resolution the resolution yeah resolution yeah. Oh, decreases yeah. yeah when you get to that i mean but, that, that's not not to say it's bad it's at, not it's not bad 10, it's it's i mean it's an well, incredible we're all we're all kind of optic snobs right and yeah, we're all sure. very nitpicky and detail yeah, right. oriented I mean, about this and we don't want to we don't want to so go so around so if you're going to nitpick that's what they're going to get we don't want to yes <laughs> and we don't want to go around telling people that this is going to replace your AMG 624 right because right. right. that's if you right. go into this with the idea that it's going to do that then you're wrong but also different purpose scope different purpose scope mm-hmm. you talk about you talk about going into let's say a very low light situation how many times are you going to find yourself in a very low light situation? Okay, I shouldn't say how many times you're going to find yourself, but with this kind of optic doing a job that this kind of optic is designed for, where you're going to be zoomed into ten power, you know, I mean, yeah. that's well, that's a job where oftentimes you're going to want to back off because you probably also in low light it's nice to have bigger field of view, which you're not mm-hmm. going to have when you're zoomed in all the way, uh, you know, and then zoom out a bit and use it just like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I think too that's that's an important distinction because if you look at this. Uh, compared to other low-power variables, and I'm not going to get into competitor names specifically just because that's not what I like doing. I, I think that at equivalent magnifications to other optical systems that are out there, this performs extremely well. Oh, right. And obviously there really aren't any that go above eight with maybe a handful of exceptions. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't know of any that are out there right now that go to 10 and also have true daylight bright illumination. Yeah, gotcha. You know, so... it's really almost in a class of its own when it comes to that. If you look at all of the features wrapped up into one single scope, and I think for a low-power variable that goes to 10 power, I mean, the the optics are really very good. Um, For sure. At 10 power, I'd I'd say that they're better even than some other competitors at a a lower magnification. I would would agree, too, in some of the focus group stuff that we did. So it's something to keep in mind, you know. Let's let's uh, ask MC Ryan here because and if for those of you watching on YouTube right now, you may notice that there is a very large screen behind us now. Yeah. This is new. Uh, I like this. Uh, MC Ryan, can you pop up the reticles here? Because we I know a lot of people are going to want to discuss reticles because we just we taught we alluded to yeah. reticles yep. a little bit ago, and uh, a very important feature in any rifle scope, but especially a low power variable optic, where we're now talking about something that is both. It's designed to be effective at both close range and let's just start saying it long range. It used to be just mid range, but I mean, we can start saying it at long range. So right here, what we have up now, there's two reticle options in the Razor 1 to 10. There is a BDC, an EBR, what is it? Nine BDC. Yep. And then there's an EBR nine, which is kind of a MRAD MRAD, and it's more, 
It's military. not designed around a ballistic curve. It's right. just designed around being like a ruler, like an MRAD ruler. Yeah, it's a mill Christmas tree ru- uh, reticle. There you yeah, can see so right, there. right yep. now what we have up is the EBR9, and this one is the non-BDC, so it's just in, in mills. Yep. And, uh, okay, so we have kind of an open top half, except with the exception for the pretty much only thing in the top half is, is now we have this ranging or milling element. Yeah, I, I don't know why it, I'm going into this first, but it's just right I there. I call it's it a ranging feature. Out. I wouldn't call it a milling because you're not going off a standard graduation. Like if Got you it. wanted to mill something, you would use the Correct. horizontal or lower vertical Correct. stadia, I guess. So it wouldn't be this reticle wouldn't be great for doing that. So how does that how does that work? It's almost like a so, an inverse so pyramid. Yep. With so lines. It's a quick it's a quick ranging reference feature. So what you'd do is you'd take like a silhouette target. Um, and this, that's what this was designed for. You'd put the bottom of the silhouette target at that floating line, and then wherever the top matched up to, whether it's the six, five, four, three, that's the distance in. This one is in uh, hundreds of meters instead of yards. Yards is on the BBC okay. one. This is hundreds of meters. Oh. So if you had the top of the silhouette target, Very the head of that touched the three there, that three line, that would mean that your target is at 300 yards. And you can make meters. your correction. Sorry, 300 meters. Thank you, Jimmy. That you can make your corrections or your holdovers accordingly there. Very, like, very European. Without that super simple explanation... You'd be like, what is that? Yeah. And then you look at it, you're like, I could use that in 0.2 seconds. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, we could have written the entire directions on there too, but I think it would have been a little too That would include the field of view, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it works on the gross approximation that most human torsos are kind of the same size. Yeah. yeah. And so that gives you a ranging estimation that would enable you to kind of hit something that size. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously now getting down to the whole rest of the reticle here, we have, yep. I guess how would you use There's thick posts. There's three thick posts. There's a nine o'clock, a three o'clock, and a six o'clock. Yep. Those come in and they thin down, and that's where you really get to the meat of the reticle, if you will. Yep. Uh, because now we have a centered dot. Yep. With a segmented uh, circle. Segmented circle around it. Uh, that's the part that illuminates. Center dot and segmented circle around center dot is what illuminates, that's right? That's correct. And when yep. you're zoomed out, if we can briefly show MC Ryan, if you could go to our zoomed out photo. So this would be at like one power. Yeah, like one power, and of course we're looking at a gigantic. Well, this would be ten power. Here. This here is 10 power. Right. And then MC Ryan's going to do a quick... Oh, wait. No, right. just kidding. That okay. was one That's power. A, yeah. We're looking at a gigantic TV screen here, so of course this, it's it's a little bit tough to get our bearings. This, but, this would be 10 power. The other one's probably more of like three, three four power. Three or four, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. One, one power, basically that segmented circle just shows up as a single dot. It does. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, yes. And, and those heavy bars that go in from the three, nine, and six o'clock position really just aid in getting your eye to the center of that dot a little bit more quickly. Yeah. It just gives you a ref- uh, additional reference point. Right. Yeah, but the thin stuff kind of all but disappears. So Correct. you just end up with that nice little segmented circle and center dot, or really it just feels like it's center dot. Yep, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And then those, those nice little thick bars to bring you into the center. Yeah, and, yep. the, and the reason real quick um, why we needed to go with the segmented circle is if we would have just done that, I think it's like 0.03 mils um, is what that center dot is. Okay. Gosh, that's um, tiny. There would have been no, that wouldn't have been enough area, luminance area, remember I was talking about that before. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't have been enough s- surface area effectively um, for your eye to pick up and it for it to be bright enough. So that's yep. why we had to go to that uh, segmented circle for... Um, it's for that red dot, like brightness at one power. Makes perfect sense. And then as we move out to the sides, so we have mill uh, hash marks out to the sides. And what do we have here? We have big, uh, we have larger or thicker one mil increment hash marks. On the on, bottom. On yep. the bottom. And then on the top, we have half, half mil half mil increments. Yep. 
And then going down, there is that classic. What are you? What's the actual word for it? I hate calling it a Christmas tree. I feel like such a goofball. I mean, we just call it a mill tree. Mill tree. Yeah. Dot matrix. Dot sure. matrix. <laughs> <laughs> mill dot matrix. That sounds like something yeah. you get in like Windows DOS or something. But anyway, yeah, you just have it going down. It goes down to 11 mils. You've got mill dots coming out from there. And for windage, yep. For windage, and yeah. I mean, it, it in many ways, as you zoomed in on 10 power, it is something reminiscent of what you would see in that aforementioned AMG 624 or a Razor Gen 2 or a PST Gen 2, some of the longer-range rifle scopes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you're now being equipped with the tools inside your reticle to be more of like a precision long-range guy. Yeah. Yep. Which is pretty unique. And then as we move over to the BDC, Ryan, let's get, if we can pop on over, we'll go to the BDC. Yep. This has got to be kind of on that intermediate power uh, again right now. I'd right? Say or is this the zoomed in one, Ryan? Oh, this is the zoomed in yeah. one. My bad. Okay. okay. So we're on the BDC now at 10 power. There we go, Ryan. Yeah, that's flip like three. Yep. Yeah. So we'll go back into the zoomed in one to see the features here. You still yep. have the ranging thing at the top. And we still have the thick bars out of the three, six, and nine that come down. They get thinner, and then they come in. And then now, this one's also an MOA instead of mills. Yep. And then, Rob, you kind of explain what else is happening here, because this is this is now quite a bit different. Yeah. So you've got kind of the the vertical stadia that's right below the center segmented circle is uh, is a BDC reticle that has 300, 400, 500, and 600 yard holds for a uh, 223 load. And we've, we also added in, um, 50 yard holds as well. Um, so you, you do have a three, 350, four, 450, five. The reason that we did that is you could get, you could just put the 50 yard halfway in between the, the hundreds, but it's not exactly linear. So we wanted to just give that oh, extra, okay. um, extra precision for guys that wanted to use it. Well, and it the, doesn't, it doesn't clutter it up at all. You're not like, ah, those are kind of yeah. busy. Yeah. I'm, a little, I'm yeah. actually kind of surprised at, the, at how nicely they are spaced out. Yeah. I, I would say also, even though we've been describing obviously a lot of things going on here so far, if you're hearing the word BDC and yeah. you're like, oh, I know what a BC, BDC looks like. I've seen one in my hunting scope. It's this is quite a bit different. Well, th- quite a bit different. What's different on this one is, um, again, because we went to glass, um, we we're able to have floating features or ones that aren't connected to the the main crosshairs. So what we have are wind holds at 5, 10, 15, and 20 mile an hour for each of those 100-yard distances. Right. And so, you know, if you needed to take a shot at 500 yards and you had a 10-mile-an-hour crosswind, um, you would just put your put your target on that dot that's two over from your 500-yard BDC uh, reference point, pull the trigger, and, and hopefully hit the target. Yeah. I do have a funny story that I don't know if I should tell or not. You should. <laughs> you absolutely. Can, you yes. can't tease it. <laughs> um, so, okay, so we, we gave these scopes out to guys to, to proto, you know, prototype scopes to mm. Adam, and uh, we gave one to uh, Ruben as well. And he actually, this scope actually won nationals last year. I think it was in November yes. or November. And nobody knew he was running That's a right. one to ten because I mean, if you look at it, it looks pretty similar. And we talked about this too, you and we're to like, know, "Oh, yeah. it's it's really pretty similar." And I, I know you showed me the kind of the graphic detail that you did on your one to six, and you were, yeah. think, you were thinking of doing something similar on the one to ten. I was like, "Yep, okay, we'll give it a go." And so it's funny that this scope, before it was even announced, ended up winning nationals uh, in right. 2018, was it? Yep. So that's yeah, you otherwise wouldn't know it. Visually, it just looks a little bit chubbier because of the 34 mil tube. And well, yeah. So and the mounting cool. lengths are kind of reversed. You know, you have a shorter front mounting length mm-hmm. and a longer rear. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason I said that was because there was one stage where there was some pretty strong crosswinds, and it was a longer stage, too, I think. Oh, Ruben crushed that and stage. And he, like, was... I think he, maybe it was like 15 targets and he had like 
13 or 14 first round hits on it or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He sent me a video clip of it and it was just like hit, hit, hit. And it, it was just kind of comical to, crazy. to watch. But yeah, I mean, we've, we've had these scopes in plain sight in a lot of places and people are so used to the one to six and what it looks like that they, if they don't look at it too close, we, I, we put a little bit of urban camo on ours. So we like put a vortex sticker over where it says one to 10 mm-hmm. and we yeah. put like some white tape over where it goes beyond six. Right? Yeah. 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 But like, and you could, we could even hand it to like some of our teammates who were very, very familiar with one to six. And they didn't really know what they were, what they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until, they, until they look through it and they're like, wait, what's going on yeah. here? Yeah. What, what, what is that? Yeah. So, what kind of ruse are you pulling? I mean, you can tell, like, we've got them side by side here right, right now. So you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, there's some obvious differences. But yep. like you said, if you're just used to seeing it, mm-hmm. you wouldn't, it doesn't really stand yeah. out. Is this, like, now the ultimate DMR scope, like, designated marksman? Absolutely. And how did, what, what is the DMR? Like designated marksman. Designated marksman. What, what is that? So that's kind of where we were talking through before, where we kind of found like applications for rifles that that found themselves because of capabilities. So traditionally, you had battle rifles or infantry rifles, patrol rifles, and then you had precision rifles, sniper rifles, you know, long range rifles. And there's kind of this gap in between where uh, law enforcement found themselves and then the military found themselves where they kind of needed something in between. Yeah. Um, so that was where, you know, a classic example of that would be like the Mark 12 program in the early 2000s where they took a full-length service rifle in 223, but they put a scope on it, whereas before that would either mm-hmm. be a bolt-action 308 or you'd have an iron-sighted 223. Well, now they put the scope off the one and then put it on the other, and they <laughs> had it in between. But for I those this crazy yeah. idea, yeah, let's <laughs> take this thing that can mount on any Picatinny rail and put it on this one. Exactly, <laughs> it'll exactly. never work. But to to bridge that gap, you kind of had this guy who had to be covered by his teammates, you know, because they had to like clear a structure before they could get to the hide. Yeah, or you know that guy couldn't defend himself as easily. You know, so that's where you had when things got like close and hairy. And, yeah, yeah. So so you, that's where you started to see like these piggyback setups of red dots and and things okay, like yeah. that. Or, like, in, in the law enforcement application, like, you had to have special training on magnified scopes to to use them, and you didn't, they didn't cross-apply. Now, I think, I mean, we've had higher power, low-power variables for a while, you know, where we went up to 6, and then the industry went up to 8. But I feel like 10 is where we, we kind of breached that that threshold. It was like, well, now this, this really is a DMR scope, like, 10 power is traditionally the kind of magnification that that kind of designated marksman rifle would have. And now it has all the capabilities of a 1 to 4 or 1 to 6. So we can make one rifle cover a lot of bases. Yeah. That kind of opens itself up to more weapon systems too. Right. 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 And it's and it's a more streamlined weapon system too, where before you had multiple optics hanging on one mm-hmm. rifle yep. we've con- consolidated them down into one yeah or like in law enforcement so you know they might only have a couple guys in their department who are designated marksmen but that guy still patrols the beat every day with a patrol rifle in the back of his car well now he can have that same rifle in the back of his car covering patrol rifle and his designated marksman duties on yeah. the same budget with one rifle. They didn't yeah. need to have two systems. Well, and then from a training and consistency perspective, right? Yep. I, I would think, like, 
if I'm using essentially the same rifle and optic, no matter my job or the application, Mm -hmm. I would think like I'm going to be better at it. It's like, oh, if I throw the football every day, the same football, like I'm going to be good at throwing that football. Yep. We have customers that have have, uh, expressed interest in that too, putting one scope on different systems. They're going to put them on SBRs and 308 rifles, and they only had to train their guys on one scope, like one reticle. Now explain, so speaking of some of these rifles like this, so we're talking about with the BDC, for example, what's going to, which, which reticle is going to be more popular with which crowd I should ask. And then also I'm thinking about now looking at like a designated marksman guy. Is he using the BDC? And if so, how do we arrive at the 223 style BDC? Does that work out with 308 stuff? You know, so there's seven questions to answer. Yeah, we'll start with question. <laughs> what was four. the first one? <laughs> uh, let's go. Let's start with the with the fact that we use the two two three. So can it you can it work out okay with like three oh eights and stuff like that? I mean, I know you can yes. always morph a BDC to anything. Yes, but I think you need to do a different zero distance. Yeah, the right. the math's a little bit different. Like nobody wants to do the math, but yeah, like the bullet flies the same. You just have to true it to to this reticle. Yeah, yeah, but. I mean, it's it's a very subtle. You figured it out. I think difference. if I remember right, because we're using the same drops as the JM one BDC. I think yeah. with a three hundred eight, it's like one hundred, two twenty, three thirty, four forty, and then like six hundred or something. Yeah. Um. I mean, but, it, yeah. But now my question back to you guys again: Which reticle is going to be more popular with which crowd? I would say because that that makes a difference, right? To for example, you're discussing mill le guys, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you've also discussed. Ruben in competition. I mean, that's what we designed this reticle for, was yeah. more for a competition okay. user than, a, than it would be for a mili- military or law enforcement. Yeah, this okay. is this awesome. is the reticle that they gave us to keep me and Ruben quiet. <laughs> this, is <laughs> we, yeah, this is what we've been asking for for a long time. If I were going to crystal ball it, I would say that this is probably going to be the more popular offering mm-hmm. because civilian sales probably drives a lot more of uh, volume than the private sector does currently, or government sector currently. So I would say this is in terms that most shooters understand or are applying the rifles to. It's also simpler. There's fewer floating features. I love me some floating features. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. there's fewer of them in this one. It seems so fast. On on Adam's online MySpace dating profile, it says loves floating features. Throwback to MySpace. Are you stalking me? <laughs> um. But then the other one is a little bit more like I've always looked at like a when you see a mill reticle, you know, with the dots and everything. Like that, I've always looked. It's just like all business, you mm-hmm. know. It's all kind of I don't even know a good way to describe it, but there's nothing about it that's. I mean, you can come up with things, but there's nothing about it. It's like oh, here's this little cheat to like help yeah. you be really fast in this one scenario. It's kind of like nope. This is a really consistent way to do just about anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, when you get those things, I, when you get, uh, you see like a gamer's three gun AR 15 setup, you know, right. and I'm using the term gamer not in like in a bad way, but I'm just saying like somebody who really is in it to make their rifle fast for a three gun stage. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it's- not necessarily the same gun they want to take to defend their home or take over right. to, you know, something extend that's the gun they want to use for that stage whereas when you see uh and similarly maybe to a little bit to the bdc style reticle or this this kind of style reticle whereas when you go to the mill reticle that's like your utilitarian down to business it can do anything yeah well and the other thing too is the mill that ebr9 mrad is i mean it can be used 
on whatever weapon system that you want to, whether it's 308, 65, 68, whatever you wanted to, to put it on, you could, you yep. could do yep. that. And yep. been, you temp- just have to know your corrections. So. Been, MC Ryan, could you please pop us back to the MRAD reticle real fast? I think yeah. some people just yeah. kind of have a mental block at, well, it's a BDC optimized for one thing, but I have a different thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's easier to tell them, okay, we'll use this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it. then there's also a few very prominent demographics of customers where it's got to be something like this or it needs not apply. Sure. Mm. So uh, they're, you know, certainly on the government side, there's a lot of folks like that. And then even the precision crowd, like even when they're not precision shooting, they feel like they need something or that's, you know, just kind of how they pre- prefer yeah. to interpret the world. Yeah. Well, I don't so want to be DC. It's not too perfect to my thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I interrupted you. Mike. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's probably what they're used to. I mean, they're yeah. used to a reticle. Similar to this, that's how yep. they use the reticle, and you mm-hmm. know, and they're probably good at it and efficient at it. Mm-hmm. Another thing, too, um, a fun little Easter egg, I guess, that I can comment on is we're showing the reticle illuminated right now. But when it's not illuminated, those illuminated features are actually somewhat transparent. They're not completely blacked out. Oh, I noticed yes. that. And so, Wait, what? Yeah. So it's almost like a soft. It's gr- more grayed out, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So take a look at this. Explain and why okay. did you do that? Well, we did it for a couple of reasons. Um, one was oh, manufacturing. I'm on 10 power. I'm gonna... No, you, it's it's at ten powers. Oh yeah, okay. It. I yeah, see yeah. what you're saying. So, um, oh yeah. The other thing too is we noticed. So, one of the challenges with having a really wide zoom range scope is a balance between having the reticle features too thin, manufacturing tolerances, and or manufacturing capabilities, and um, and then you know being usable at a wide range of magnifications. So for example, if we would have made this reticle thinner at 10 power, it would okay. have been also thinner at 8 power, at 6 power, and so on. At 1 power wouldn't have been that big a deal. But at 8 power and 6 power, it's already kind of thin to begin with, so it would have been difficult for me usability. Yeah, yeah. So the thing with the, the center segmented um, illuminated features being translucent, that allows us to still be able to get that illumination but not obscure the target um, when you're on it. And one of the things that we uh, were very cognizant of when we were developing that was, hey, is this is it too translucent such that you wouldn't be able to have enough contrast between, you know, your target and the, the reticle? If it's kind of gray instead of black, you know, black you have a higher contrast, um, you know, depending on what you're what your target is. And we didn't find that to be the case at all and actually found that it was actually a good decision because you're still able to see where your your reticle is, but you're not obs- uh, obscuring the, the target as much. And nice. so it's kind of a, a nice little feature in there as well. That's cool. It's almost like, um, yes, but no, but like, you know, an open center, like in a long range reticle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. A little bit. Similar. Or, or half open center. When you're talking well, about, you know, really. shooting red dots at long range, I mean, that's, that's how you do it. Yeah. You know, you make the dot so dim that you can see through it. Yeah. Oh. Yep. One of the ways. That's not the whole secret. That's part Pro of the tip. secret, That's though. part of the secret. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so the reason I said that is because that, that's probably going to be one of the first scopes, mm, I don't know, at least it's one of the first scopes I'm aware of. Um, and granted, I'm not as knowledgeable as, you know, a lot of people that, that are here at Vortex, but... If if customers are are calling in and asking, they're like, "Hey, is my reticle okay?" You know, that's you know, we we did it intentionally, so right. yeah. um, just so people are not thinking that they got a defective scope. Yeah, good deal. That's Makes a sense. feature that I'm very excited about. Like that, that came on pretty late in development. Yep. And uh, yeah, I was I was very excited when they, they decided to go that route. Nice for sure. Other classic things. You got the old razor 
class, uh, the Razor locking illumination. You don't need mm-hmm. a pipe wrench for that. Correct. And it sure goes you. up to 11. Still. And, we and also, it still goes up to 11. Thank we also God. added a laser marking that says pull to unlock. Oh, it says pull to unlock. Yeah. Oh. That, uh, we also added that to the Gen 2 E's maybe about half way between now and when we launched the Gen 2 E. And warranty, uh, and warranty returns for uh, locked illumination. Well, that's actually what ceased. Wow, that's actually what sparked it initially. I know. Andrew was like, hey, you guys think you can do something hey, check about out this? this check out these pipe wrench marks. Yeah, so <laughs> so we, we put that on there. Just, I mean, because... That's it, a big one. You know, if you, if you if you look at the, the PST 1 to 6, it doesn't have a locking illumination. You know, no, it's right. just a rotary. So if you've upgraded from that to this, it's kind of a foreign concept. So, it is. Um, anyway. How are these turrets? Are these turrets designed to be dialed? They're capped, and they're... They're capped. They're they, pretty, like... They can be dialed. Low they, profile... You they know. track pretty well. Um, that being said, they're not tall. There's not a ton of surface area for you to grab onto and dial. They're yeah. not going to be like a, um, a high magnification turret, yeah. like on a PST or like on a Gen 2 Razor 3D18 or 4.5 to 27. We're you so can cr- dial We're it, so though. critical on ourselves here. We say we, they dial pretty well. We say yeah. things like, oh, well, it's on 10 power. Yeah, I, exactly. I think, I think we, all, we all know that we want to make sure that when you go into this, you understand exactly what you're getting. We're not over-promising anything. We're promising you that we've just made the unicorn scope that does every single thing in the world yeah, right, right. Uh, properly. But right. dialing, it's, there would pretty be close. no... It's pretty close. But there would be no issue with somebody who decided they wanted to dial this thing. I mean, this, these are these yep. are designed to, to handle that. Yep, and fine. it's laser-marked pretty clearly. Um, again, because it's a lower-profile turret, you're not going to have as large of you know, uh, text or numbers. So it's not going to be quite as visible, but yeah. they track well. You can dial them. They, they have actually a great kind of tactile feel, yeah. you know, just mm-hmm. like the Gen 2 Razor does. Yeah. That so is probably the positive most... clicks. And... Oh yeah. Actually, holy smokes. Yeah. That is probably the most notable thing though. Like dialing them for all day at the range might get a little bit annoying because they are so low profile and, yep. but that also helps the scope remain low profile. Cause right. yep. and lighter. let's be honest. And lighter. And lighter yep. weight. Yep. Cause let's be honest again. This is a great one power scope that also happens to have the capabilities to hang out in long range. Well, and one of my favorite features of the Gen 2 and now the Gen 3 that's probably under advertised is that when you're looking through the scope, you can't see the turrets. Sure. You know, yeah. so right. that this this turret tucked is behind the magnet. Yeah, it's tucked behind. At least angularly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The way the the way the yeah, angles work out, yep. you can't see it. Where there's there's a lot of scopes that do have, you know really tactile turrets that stick up nice and tall and you can dial on them, but they also obscure your field of view. Yep. Which mm. so a scope like this isn't necessarily intended with the application of dialing so much. Right. But, That's pretty slick. But a turret that would occlude your field of view, well that would detract from what it's doing. So yep. nice. Well, have we missed anything, Rob? The mag ring turns way easier. <laughs> like way oh. easier. Yeah. So much. Let's hear. so much, so much. Okay, so that's a good solid turn. Yeah, yeah. Now on the we, heard, we heard you on the magaring tension from the Gen Two, loud yeah. and clear. Oh, it's a little so yeah. so many yeah. people are like oh mag you know uh, throw lever required blah blah blah. Like, oh well, I, another I thing don't too. Even put one on. My Jim, another Jim thing had, too. Jim had this cranked all the way over to the right. Yeah. already, and I went to crank it to the right. I was like. Impossible. Oh, She's locked this up. Way. Mark's over there. Oh, yeah. Uh, super yeah. super yeah. easy. Yeah, where's that pipe wrench we were talking about, Jim? I'm going to get her to go. So another thing, too, that's nice for the Gen 3 is even though the mag ring is a lot easier to turn, um, we are including a switch view through a lever in the box as well with it. So oh, if you do yeah, want to nice. run it, oh, cool. um, you, you know, you'll have it and you won't need to buy anything else. Uh, certainly you can 
by other you know thrill lovers but we wanted to include that one as well a nice. little extra value to the customer so oh and from the peanut gallery why did we not include the throw lever in the magnification ring well because there was a uh, enough i think consternation over where to put the uh the throw lever location and it, like the, the threaded hole the for threaded it, if hole you were to yeah thread in yep yep and and that also I don't know, depending on if we were going to put that into the mag ring, it's a fixed location. So depending on what rifle, again, with the um, we wanted to have common parts, mechanical parts between the the BDC and the MRAD one uh, variants. And so, you know, if you're going to put it on a bolt gun or you're going to put it on an AR, it's not really as big a deal. But just having it, it round and symmetrical allows you to put the switch view wherever you want to hmm. um, versus it being in a, in a finite location. Fully customizable. Well, fully customizable. Oh, there you go. Well, hey, it would market, it also be correct for marketing. It's, <laughs> it's intended as an external failure point instead of an internal. Yep, that's another great point. So if um, thanks for bringing that up. So you know if you you know you you smoke that lever on a barrel as you're dumping your rifle or something, and it ends up shearing off or fracturing the mag ring, and and now you're stuck at whatever magnification you oh, were previously sure. set on, now the switch view will just come off and you can still use it without a throw lever, which you don't need because the magnification ring tension is a lot uh, lighter now. So Nice work, Adam. Yeah, good plug there. Hey, here's uh, <laughs> here's maybe a final question to, to for people to ponder over or rob you to ponder over. Sure. Adam, you asked this earlier. I liked it. Um, why, why stop at 10? Yeah. Why like, stop at 10? Why stop at 10? Is, well, it, possi- we is it even possible to make like a... <laughs> Well, so remember what I was talking about earlier and and the reticle feature size relative to manufacturing capabilities and then also what, what you're able to do with the optical system. So as, as you're going higher in magnification, you need to be able to resolve better. Otherwise, that extra magnification isn't useful necessarily. And then also, if we were to keep the same... We, so we're pretty much at the manufacturing limit as far as feature sizes go okay, right. for this reticle. We okay. can't really go smaller and actually manufacture the reticle. Mm-hmm. So what would happen then if you go up to 12 is that is now going to scale an extra 20% in thickness. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have, you know, the, the reticle features are going to be larger because they're going to magnify, you know, with the image. So those are just some of the trade-offs at the reticle level. And then obviously there's a bunch of things with the optical system that you'd need to reconsider to have usable resolution, um, that's probably going to drive the price of that scope up farther. So, I mean, it's not to say that you might not see that in the future. I know a lot of people have talked to us about doing a 1 to 10 second focal plane rifle scope. That's a, that's a different thing, but it's, you know, again, with second focal plane, subtensions for the reticle only being accurate at a certain magnification, which yeah, generally one tends of 10, 10% to be 10. of the time. So that doesn't lend itself to a great use case. And, and then kind of conversely for the first focal plane one, you run into, you know, some reticle design issues potentially and, um, and you know, just probably a significantly increased cost for being yeah. able to accommodate the, the extra magnification there. Let's say there was a lucrative market out there for uh, customers with $25 million to spend on a 1 to 24. Wow. Would it be possible? Well, anything's possible with enough time and money. Um, <laughs> that being said, I, I think, like it. <laughs> um, it's a lot of money, Mark. Yeah. That's maybe, I maybe shouldn't speak so absolutely. Um, but generally speaking, most things are possible with enough time and money. Um, that being said, a one to 24, um, everything. 
It would. Everything. Literally do. So that. here, okay, so so here, here, here would be the I thing. I put Rob on this. This is probably a terrible question to ask an engineer. <laughs> you would have, so what I think what you would find that you'd run into is either probably above 14 power, you would have a reticle that's so thick it wouldn't be usable. Okay, fair. Yeah. And if you were able to somehow get it to be small enough where it was usable, it wouldn't be usable between anything below 12 power. Oh yeah. It would just it would be just super be thin. You wouldn't see it at invisible. all. And so just to give you It'd some, just to give you some, a telescope some, a frame of reference here, 12 power. the, some of those reticle features, I'm not exactly sure what the, the size of them are, but they're like on the order of microns. So yeah. millionths of an inch. And so how thick is the human hair? I think it's like 70 or 80 yeah, microns. somewhere in there. So it's yeah. like point 10, of reference. I'm kind of a caveman. So I need yeah, that. it's more than 10 times smaller than the human hair is in diameter. And so, you know, if you were going to now go from 10 to 24 power, all else being equal, the feature sizes would need to get 2.4 times thinner than that to ma- maintain the same angular subtension. That's brutal. Yeah, so I mean... It, it's possible there might be some cool technologies in the future that allow us to do some crazy things with like overlaid features or, you know, different different things where we're able to make something like that work. But mm-hmm. as of right now, it's not readily available. Yeah. No, that's fair. This is the kind of crap I like doing with my older brothers too, Sam and Dave. Just, you just throw them a question that them. you didn't really even think about that much, but then <laughs> you make them think a lot about it. Just kind yeah. of pull the pin on that grenade and right. just toss it they out. Say, hey, here you go. <laughs> they won't be able to sleep for the next 17 weeks here, pondering this. this question that you just fucked out of your pocket. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be this time next year. I'm going to be like, well, Jim, I was thinking about this, so <laughs> we couldn't quite out. get up to <laughs> 1 to 24, but here's a 1 to 20 prototype. Yeah, yeah. Rob's got zero hair left. Yeah, I've been thinking about what you said a year ago. Yeah pretty gray uh excellent okay well everybody uh at the time of this release now depending on when you listen to this maybe it'll already been well released but at the time of this release there may be a little bit until you can actually get one of these in your hands and see it but we can assure you if you get the chance in your local dealer you see us at one of the shows out there or you happen to buzz by the showroom here in barneveld wisconsin southwestern wisconsin here uh you should definitely check this out and see it side by side with the one to six razor gen two that so many people have been familiar with since what i think 2012 was when that thing came out so and and um, continuing production still continuing production still that's the thing is it's not disappearing thank you for pointing that out yeah there'll be a price difference between the two so so yeah that is going to be our second focal plane low power variable option yeah, and the reason that tie-in, yes. bomb-proof, proven uh, for yeah, nearly a, well now. A time you're going to listen to this about eight years. So mm-hmm. check it out. Yeah, do the side-by-side thing and uh, let us know what you think of low-power variables as well, because we discussed that here a little bit too, and it will probably likely continue to be a point of contention amongst the old Red Dot fans and Prism Scope fans, holographic fans, and the low-power guys and. The precision guys now will probably be getting their hands yeah. in the mix talking about these things. And so, very curious. Hope we uh, spark up a lot of interesting debates and conversations. And yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think we're going to cap this one off. We'll uh, post up some of these pictures of the reticles, too, that we've been showing behind us and yep. catch you all next time. Catch you Over later. and out. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. 
Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.